second lesson from the New Testament. You'll find printed in the insert in your bulletin, translation by J.B. Phillips, Colossians 3, 1 through 11. If you are then risen with Christ, reach out for the highest gifts of heaven, where Christ reigns in power. Give your heart to the heavenly things, not to the passing things of earth. For as far as this world is concerned, you are already dead, and your true life is a hidden one in God through Christ. One day Christ, the secret center of our lives, will show himself openly, and you will all share in that magnificent moment. In so far, then, as you have to live upon this earth, consider yourselves dead to worldly contacts, have nothing to do with sexual immorality, dirty-mindedness, uncontrolled passions, evil desire, and the lust for other people's goods, which last, remember, is as serious a sin as idolatry. It is because of these very things that the holy anger of God falls upon those who refuse to obey him. And never forget that you had your part in those dreadful things when you lived that old life. But now, put all these things behind you. No more evil temper or furious rage. No more evil thoughts or words about God. And no more filthy conversation. Don't tell one another lies anymore, for you have finished with the old man and all he did and have begun life as the new man who is out to learn what he ought to be according to the plan of God. In this new man of God's design, there is no distinction between Greek and Hebrew, Jew or Gentile, foreigner or savage, slave or free man. Christ is all that matters for Christ lives in them all. We have been studying on Sunday morning the Beatitudes. We have studied through five of the Beatitudes and today we come to the sixth. In a sense there is a progression of thought that exists in the Beatitudes which ought to always be carefully uh, heeded. When Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, he sought to tell us that we were inadequate in ourselves, and only the person who recognized his need of God could ever even hope, could ever even hope to come into that kingdom. That's the first step, is to know my need of him. That's the first key to enter the door. The second is, blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. This tells me that not only is self inadequate, but that I have a sin problem to be dealt with. There is not one person here this morning, there is not one individual listening on the radio, who is not at one time or another haunted and frustrating by a pervaded sense of guilt. When Gilbert Chesterton joined the Roman Catholic Church, frequently going to confessions. And once a person asked him, why did you join the Catholic Church? And Gilbert Chesterton re 
replied with both truth and some bitterness in his voice to get rid of my damned sins. He wanted to go someplace where someone taught him a little bit about the atonement and taught him about confession of sin. Well, all of us need to learn to confess our sins. We need to confess them to God. We need to confess them to one another. We need to seek his forgiveness. We need to mourn over the sin of the world which has caused so much of the misery that we see about us and so much of the misery that exists in our own households. I saw some time ago a statistic dealing with murder, and it was absolutely frightening that far over 50%, nearer to 80% of the murders committed in the United States are committed by members of families, one against the other. This is how pervasive hate can be. Then next is blessed are the meek. Meek does not mean weak. Rather, meek means those who are under the control of, who are coachable and teachable, who are under the authority of God and under the authority of God's word. This is what's so wrong with so much of what goes by for Christianity today. It is not tested according to what the scriptures say, but we follow one learned theologian after the other. And it's possible to be a great theologian and not even a Christian at all. We are to test everything according to the word of God and our lives are to be controlled by the authority and the teaching of Scripture. And the Holy Spirit speaks to us through the Holy Scriptures. Now those three Beatitudes teach us about entrance into the kingdom. After we are entered into the kingdom, we begin to hunger and to thirst after righteousness. We are told by Jesus that just the desire on our parts to do God's will will whet our appetite for more desire to do his will. Do you have a good appetite for God? Are you hungry for the things of God? If one of my children comes to the table and he does not want anything to eat, I know the peanut butter and jelly sandwich deal has come in somewhere along the line. And uh, why aren't you hungry for the things of God? If you stuff your mind with pornography, if you fill your mind with the things of the earth, if you are constantly gorging your appetites upon things that are contrary to God and the scriptures and the plain teachings of Jesus, then you won't have any appetite for prayer meeting. You won't have any appetite for hymns. Church will be the biggest possible bore to you because there's no appetite. How's your appetite? A corpse doesn't have an appetite. You can walk right by a corpse with a T-bone steak. He won't get up and eat it. He doesn't want it. There are a lot of Presbyterians that you could serve up the most biblical, Holy Spirit-inspired message that ever came, and they'd snore right through it. And, and, uh, and not just limited to Presbyterians. There are others, too, because there's a great difference in being a member of a church. How many people do we see coming confessing their faith in Christ, have had some churchy experience, and later have been quickened by the Holy Spirit into a real knowledge of the Lord. How's your appetite? How's your appetite for spiritual things? Last week we came to one of those outcroppings of all of the other Beatitudes. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. I did not 
last week tell you anything of the history of the word mercy. 150 times in the Old Testament this word is being used, mercy. And it's a beautiful Hebrew word, kased. And what it is teaching is not simply pardon, but it goes further in the New Testament. Jesus touches mercy and he makes it go still further. Just as he touches all of these other beatitudes and he makes them go still further. Last week when I spoke with some of our young friends who will come to uh, communion for the first time next week as members of the church finishing up a class that we started a couple of years ago, we talked about the word mercy. Mercy is pardon and forgiveness, but it is something more. It goes further than that. You remember the story of the Samaritan who helped a man out on the road? No place in the Gospel of Luke are we told that that Samaritan was good. We call him the Good Samaritan. And do you know why? He showed mercy, said Jesus. And he not only showed mercy by stopping and pouring in oil and wine and binding up the man's wounds and sitting the man on his own beast and taking him to an inn and then making arrangements with the innkeeper, giving him some money and saying, take care of him, and if he owes anything more than this, when I come back this way, I'll pay it. That's mercy. It not only shows goodness, but it goes still further. It does something more. I was one time present at a prayer meeting at the United States Senate many, many years ago in a little prayer meeting. I was staying with a, a friend who was a senator, and, and I kind of suspected that he hadn't been going to prayer meetings. And uh, so I asked him one night, I, I said, uh, George, do you go to the to the prayer meeting in the Senate, and he's a very charming fellow, and he put his hands on my shoulder like this, and he said, No, Calvin, I haven't been, but I'm going tomorrow, and I'm going to take you with me. And, and so uh, they had a rule that they wouldn't allow any preachers to come in there because they knew they'd be telling stories like this. And uh, so, uh, uh, so when we got to the door... They looked and saw my friend, and they were so happy that he was coming that they let me sneak in. So you get to share in the experience. And the lesson that morning happened to be with kindness. Now, this is the New Testament word for kindness because it goes further than for mercy. It goes further than mercy. Kindness is a better word than mercy uh, because it's going to do something more. And so that morning, the, the lesson was being taught by a distinguished senator from South Carolina, and a good Bible student, and, he, and the, the text, I'll never forget it, was, Be ye kind to one another, tender-hearting, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. And there were 20 senators present. Now, I wasn't permitted to speak. I just sat there and watched them. And the senator at the head read the lesson from the Bible, and then he began to talk about kindness. And I noticed that uh, it doesn't matter now to say his name. Senator Kerr from Oklahoma at that time was sitting near where I was. He was a very big man, but he had a very famous temper. And the day before on the floor of the Senate, he had exploded in a temper tantrum and had impugned the sanity and the mentality of another uh, senator. And so as it went around from senator to senator making comments, all eyes looked toward Senator Kerr. 
And uh, my friend who was sitting by me, George, whispered and said, Kerr got mad yesterday. <laughs> he said he blew up on the floor as a senator and he called Senator Aiken crazy. And he, he said, watch this. <laughs> and so when it got around to Senator Kerr, Senator Kerr was sitting there and he, he was a little nervous. He had his coffee and his breakfast. And he said, he said Strom, I like that uh, lesson you read. Uh, he said, you know, I haven't always been as kind as I should have been. And he said, sometimes I get a little excited and I say things that I ought not to say. He said, I want a copy of that. I'm going to send one of my pages around today to pick up that lesson. I want to read it over again. And he said, if I've said anything to any of you that uh, I shouldn't have said, then I, I, I hope you'll forgive me. And this has helped me, and I want a copy of it. Well, I admired him for his confession. It's better than you'd find in a lot of churches. And... Uh, uh, he wanted to make a correction, and uh, he was blessed. Well, I was seated on one side by my friend who was a senator, and on the other side by Senator Frank Lauschi from Ohio. And uh, uh, Frank Lauschi is a, a wonderful Roman Catholic, and Senator Lauschi had a, it was in the wintertime, there was snow on the ground, and the senator who had brought me, I didn't bring an overcoat with me, so he loaned me his big, uh, blue cashmere overcoat, and that's a little too rich for my blood. I'm not used to cashmere. But uh, I, I reached over and picked up the wrong overcoat. I picked up Senator Lausch's cashmere overcoat. And I, <laughs> I put it on and walked out in the snow. And uh, then later on in the course of the day, I'd made the prayer at the Senate, and, and so I was roaming around in this overcoat, and I thought it was my friends, and I reached in the pocket, and there were some letters to the Senator Lausche, and I thought, oh my goodness, I've stolen his coat. And, <laughs> and, and, and I, I went to my friend, and I said, what am I going to do? I got Senator Frank Lausche's coat. And he laughed, and he said, go over to his office <laughs> and take it to him. And so I, I went to his office, and he's a very wonderful person. And I came in and I said, uh, Senator, I've come to give myself up. <laughs> I've stolen your overcoat. <laughs> and uh, I explained what happened and he understood and we had a good laugh about it. Now this is the point. I found out later that Senator Lauschi really got his step toward the United States Senate when he was a judge in Ohio. And when one day, a bitter cold day in his courtroom, during the Depression, a man had been brought in before his co uh, courtroom for stealing. The poor man had a family. He was out of work. He was hungry. He walked by a bakery and he smelled that good fragrance of fresh baked bread and he went close to the bakery. The bakery was locked. He looked in the window and he saw loaves of bread. And he looked both ways and he couldn't see anyone coming and he took a rock and he broke the window and he stole some bread and he ran away and a policeman caught him and they brought him into court. And the man said that he was trying to get some bread to feed his family, that he had been out of work for weeks and that there was no food in the house and that he was hungry. Senator Lausche was there in his judicial robes and he looked up and he saw that there were some lawyers who admired him that were rather prosperous looking in the room and some other people in the courtroom. And Senator Lausche took his gavel and said, I sentence every man in this courtroom a dollar apiece for allowing a city to exist in which a man goes hungry like this. 
and I demand that the bailiff go take up the dollar fine that each of you owe. <laughs> and the bailiff went and took up the money and brought it back to the judge, who was Senator Lousy, and Judge Lousy took the money, and he said to the man who had committed the crime, he said, I dismiss the charge against you. You are forgiven, and take this money and buy some food for your family. Courts dismissed. Now, that was a gracious act. It made all the papers. Senator Lausche got famous. Now, that's, that's mercy that goes on to kindness. It's mercy that not only pardons, but it is mercy that does something to help. And that's what all of us need. Not only that God should forgive me of my sins when I make my confession of faith and that I am baptized, but that I know how to go back to him continually and find the cleansing which I need to live for him. And so we come today uh, to this beautiful beatitude that we can touch upon for a minute, the sixth of the, the beatitudes and probably the most profound one we have studied up until now. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. What does it mean, said my little boy to me last night, what does it mean to be pure in heart? A little later on, Jesus is going to say, keep your eye single of purpose. Pure in the words, exact words that Jesus uses is without alloy. If I say that this is pure gold, I don't have to tell you that it's gold. It doesn't have any iron in it. doesn't have any lead in it. doesn't have any tin in it. It's gold. Pure means that it's without any mixture. It's not adulterated. It doesn't have anything else in it. If I say that water is pure water, that means the water doesn't have anything else in it. If I say that a Jersey cow is a purebred Jersey, I don't have to say this is not a Holstein, this is not an Angus, this this is a jersey, a purebred jersey. Well, now Jesus said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now that is, in their relationship to God, they seek to be perfectly pure. Pure in that their motive before God is pure. Do you really want God? Want him so that you hunger and thirst after him. Want him so that you're willing to show mercy. Want him so that you're pure in heart and single in purpose. Little Adger was reciting from our child's catechism. The Westminster Shorter Catechism says, What is the chief end of man? And the answer comes back, It is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Now then, the reason that that's put first is that if I don't make that my priority, then everything else will get out of kelter. So it must be simple of purpose. I tell the little children in the communicants class, if you have a little jacket on uh, and, and, or a sweater and it's got buttons and you start the buttons wrong, then it's wrong all the way up. And that's the way it is with God. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and these other things will be added unto you. If I don't get that first, then everything else is going to be out of order all the way up. 
You can't put God in somewhere up here. Seek your living first. Seek your fun first. Seek everything else first. And then wonder why it's all out of sorts. You must start off with your aim, simple of purpose. You can't hit two targets at the same time. You, you learn to single out. You learn to single out. And so Jesus wants our eye to be single, and that is to serve him and to put him first. To put him first, not to be a mixture of something else. And you see this all the way through. A soldier can't serve two different armies, can he? Billy Graham used to tell about a soldier in the Civil War who couldn't make up his mind which side to join, so he put a Yankee coat on, and he put Confederate trousers on, and he got shot at by both sides. <laughs> and there are some Christians like that. They get shot at by the world, and they get shot at by the church. Uh, they can't make up their mind. They, they want to they love God and serve the devil, too. And you can't do it. Jesus said, no man can serve two masters. When a man gets married, he makes his choice. And he marries his wife. If then he decides he wants another wife, his first wife takes a dim view of that as a rule. <laughs> That's considered evil. There's a lot of difference between one and two. But there's not much difference between two and three and four and five and six. If you have the word apple, if you want two apples, all you've got to do is put an S at the end of it. And that can make it two apples or 2,000 apples. So, we are told in the Ten Commandments that we are to, that we are to love God and that we are to serve Him that he is a jealous God. We're not to have any other gods before him. In this same Sermon on the Mount, we are told that we are to love him with all of our heart. The blessed old Negro spiritual, I want to be a Christian in my heart. Blessed are the pure in heart, the seed of my affection. With all of my heart, my soul, my mind, my strength. I want to be a Christian in my head. I want my brain to be there too. Not just an intellectual ascent, but that my heart and my head both belong to the Lord. This is extremely important. Bernard of Clairvaux was one of the greatest of all of the 12th century figures in the Christian church. You sing his hymns all the time and perhaps do not even recognize it. We sung one just a few Sundays ago. Jesus, thou joy of loving hearts, thou fount of life, thou light of men, from the best bliss that earth imparts, I turn unfilled to thee again. Bernard of Clairvaux lived in a time when his contemporary Peter Abelard, a man who didn't have a pure heart, who was engaged in an evil sexual uh, affair, but who was a brilliant man. His mind was absolutely staggering in its tremendous abilities. But Abelard went down the tube, and we only can remember him faintly, and that only if you're a student of church history. But Clairvaux, Peter, uh, Bernard of Clairvaux, we sing his hymns all the time. We sing his hymns all the time because 
He was the one of a loving heart. Heart and head are to be hooked together. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Shall see God because they concentrate on God. Do you really look for God? When you came to church this morning, did you really want God to say something to you? Really want him to speak to your heart about your manner of life and your devotion and your dedication to him? Were you hungry for that? When our motive is, is that pure and that powerful, then God does speak to us. We're concentrating on him. You become what you look like, what you concentrate on. If you see filth, you become like filth. If you keep on looking at God and the things that have to do with God, he'll have his influence working in your life. Dr. Wade Boggs, who was a great moderator of our church, and I saw him out at the Highland Farms the other day when I was visiting. I used to play golf with him. He was a tremendous golfer. And I'll never forget one day when we were playing golf, and I was having a rather difficult time. Every golfer knows that the key to hitting the golf ball is that you have to keep your eye on the ball. And so I was busy talking with Dr. Boggs, and I took a cut at the golf ball and got a big clob of dirt and, and missed the ball that was sitting right there. And Dr. Boggs shook his head, and he said, You can't hit it from memory, Calvin. <laughs> now, that was a profound statement. You cannot hit it from memory. Keep your eye on the ball. Do you really want to serve God? Then when you're at parties or you're at places where there's going to be a contest between you and Baal, then do like Elijah did on Mount Carmel. Say inside yourself, now, who am I going to serve, God or Baal? That's what Elijah said to the people of Israel up there on that mountain. He said, are you going to serve God or are you going to serve Baal? Make your choice. How long halt ye between two opinions? Quit limping along. Don't be half-hearted. Now, who are you going to serve? And we are constantly being called to that. Jesus was always winnowing out his disciples. Always winnowing them out. He said, no man who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of heaven. You've got to look ahead to plow a straight furrow. And he wants our eye to be single and our motive to be pure. And he wants us to be living for him in that purity of heart. This is the dearest, dearest lesson that any of us could possibly come to today is to recognize him in just such a manner as that. David sinned grievously against God in adultery and in murder. And Nathan, God's prophet, came and pointed out to him his terrible sins. And later David wrote the 51st Psalm. And God granted him forgiveness. And in the 51st Psalm, he has those marvelous words, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Someone said that once Voltaire, the great atheist, 
decided that he would write a parody, a mockery of David's 51st Psalm. And when he got to those words, create in me a clean heart, O God, Voltaire put his pen down and he wouldn't go any further than that. Create in me a clean heart, O God. When my glasses are dirty, I can't see through them. If you can't see God, maybe it's because your glasses are dirty. If there's not much light in your soul, maybe it's because the windows are dirty. Maybe they need to be cleansed. Our constant cleansing is important. Surgeon goes and washes his hands, I'm told, for as long as ten minutes before the gloves are put on and he goes in the operating room. When I'm baptized, when I come to the Holy Supper, when I make my prayers, this does not mean that I'm not going to become contaminated with the things of the world. I must continually seek cleansing. I must continually seek cleansing. That's the work of sanctification. That's God's work in our hearts, purifying us and making us more and more like unto himself. This is what he wants in us, a pure heart. And you see God with a pure heart. You know, eyes are interesting, aren't they? I knew a man who used to live here in Montreat from New Orleans, a great ophthalmologist, an eye surgeon. Used to go fishing with him. He was one of the founders of the eye bank. You know what he told me one day out in a boat down at Lake Tahoma fishing? He said, you can take the eyes out of a dead person and put them into a living person and make them see. Isn't that something? An idiot can have 20-20 vision and a very low IQ. Helen Keller had no vision at all and an IQ that goes clear off the scale. Now what God wants us to do is to use our spiritual eyes to keep them clean, the pure in heart. They shall see God, not the learned, but the pure in heart. His word will teach you. Fellowship with his people will help you. Obedience is the big school to lead you. And if you've never yielded your life to him, I hope that you will. Next Sunday is the great day, Worldwide Communion Sunday. I hope you'll prepare your hearts. Wednesday night we'll have a prayer, a service of preparation for the Lord's Supper. No man is fit to communicate who is not fit to die. We ought to prepare to come and take the Supper of the Lord. If you've never made a commitment of your life to Christ, you can make one right now in your own heart. You could speak to me at the close of the service. We have six wonderful elders that you could speak to. There are many Bible teachers in our school. I'd love to talk with you about what it means to become a Christian. Oh God, our Heavenly Father, we bless thee for all of the lessons that you have promised from your word. We thank you for what you teach us from the sacraments. 
We pray that thou wilt help us to keep our mind on things above and not on things on this earth. Help us to consider ourselves dead to the things of this world and alive unto Christ, risen again in him as brand new creations. Help us by singleness of devotion to him, so to hunger and thirst after righteousness that we shall feast upon the living bread, that we shall feast upon the strong meat of your word, that we shall fellowship, O God, together by knowing the blessed water of the Holy Spirit inspiring us and leading us and guiding us in life. Give us love for one another. Enable us to show the kind of mercy that has hands and feet and helps. Help us to be single in our devotion. Help us to be pure in heart so that we may behold you and see you face to face. We thank you, O God, for the promise of heaven that one day, one day all of this world with its cares and problems shall be gone. There shall be no more pain nor sorrow, for the former things shall be passed away. We thank you that his servants shall see him face to face. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father and the communion of the Holy Spirit, our keeper and guide, be and abide with you all, now and forevermore.